Welcome to Adoption Unfiltered, a podcast about examining various viewpoints of lived adoption experiences. Your hosts, Sarah Easterly, Kelsey Vanderbilt-Rainyard, and Lori Holden, occupy three corners of the adoption triad, and we invite you to join us as we cover sensitive and timely issues from the perspectives of an adoptee, a birth parent, and an adoptive parent. Enjoy today's episode. All right, so um, welcome, everybody. Um, I'm Kelsey Vanderbilt-Ranyard. We have Sarah Easterly and Lori Holden, and these are all of our friends. And the three of us represent three parts of the adoption constellation. Um, if you've watched previous episodes of The Three Sides and read some of our other writing together, you know that we're about coming together for authentic, sometimes difficult conversations in a way that inspires change in understanding hearts and action. Sometimes we tackle hairy issues, such as our first episode on naming, which can be rather complex for adoptees, birth parents, and adoptive parents. But we came out of it with new understanding that was insightful all around. So all of this has been leading summer, which brings us to our big announcement. We are so excited to announce that we have signed with a publisher and that our book tentatively titled Three Plus Sides to Every Adoption will be published by Roman and Littlefield Publishers in hardcover sometime in 2023. And we have been busily, thank you, thank you, Damon. Oh, I see, oh, thank you all, thank you all. We were hoping that there might be a little, a little bit of reaction to that. And it wouldn't happen without the input of all of you and your willingness to enter into this very, um, this brave space that we are hoping to create, we sincerely feel like any kind of reform or betterment of the adoption policies and practices that are done will be done in community rather than in isolation and come from listening to each other and understanding each other and working together to make things better for all of us. And. And like Lori said, we really couldn't do this without each of you and the others who've contributed. Um, we're, you know, we definitely recognize there's a full adoption constellation um, and it's more than the three of us could ever, ever represent, um, including, all, you know, even all of us in the room, but we're, we're starting with, um, you know, we're just so happy to, to pull in others within our community, um, so many of you and um, you know, try to represent the broader picture of adoption, different kinds of adoptions, open, closed, domestic, transracial, um, intercountry, um, private, uh, same race, um, you know, just the gamut, uh, different ages, different races, different perspectives. Um, and so that's what we're seeing in this room. That's what we're seeing in the book. And, um, and our vision was to just have this this first roundtable to just as we were comparing chapters um, and talking about how our our different um, pieces of writing are coming together was thinking, gosh, we want to do we want to go beyond the book now. Like we want to we want to we want to talk. We want to see you see each of you together in in a space. So we're so happy that you're here. Um, to do that. So with that, um, we will each introduce um, the various people who are here that we're connected to. And um, I will start by, um, I'm going to go in alphabetical order. And so it might pop all over the screen. So just do a little wave when I um, 
when I re say your name, but Amanda Medina, um, I'll go first because you start with A, Amanda, not to put you on the spot. Um, Amanda is a transracial intercountry adoptee. She was born in Colombia um, sometime in 1984, raised in Sweden. She is the amazing host of This Adoptee Life, the blog and podcast. She's also the creator of the Adoptee Mantra, a poster of affirmations for adoptees, very important. Um, Amanda's work's all about vulnerability, community. She's built her platform by boldly sharing her story as well as understanding, um, as, as her understanding of adoption has unfolded, and she generally, generously makes space for other adoptee voices to be heard too. So welcome, Amanda. Glad you're here. Damon Davis is next. Hi, Damon. Um, a domestic same-race adoptee born in 1972. He's the author of the adoptee memoir, Who Am I Really?, as well as host and producer of the long-running podcast of the same name. I think uh, we talked earlier today, and it's now approaching getting up towards 200 episodes, 180-something, I think. Yeah, really exciting. Yeah, um, and Damon, I just want to say, has just been a longtime supporter of countless adoptees, um, making space for them to share their stories, um, helping non-adopted people grow in their understanding of adoptees' challenges and experiences, and um, just a really overall, just grounded, approachable, uh, wise, wholehearted um, adoptee uh, who supports other adoptees. So we're very glad Thank to have you. you. Thank you. Uh, Diego. Hi, Diego. Uh, Vitelli is another Colombian adoptee, adopted in 1979 when he was around five years of age. Um, Diego has been on what I've heard him describe as an eight eight plus year journey of self-discovery and passion, uh, driven to find a meaningful and rewarding way to support the adoptee community. Uh, so uh, he is now a relationship and family therapist in the state of Washington, centering adoptees and their adoptee identity development through their lived experiences. He's very well known in the adoptee community and in Seattle where we both reside. Um, he's the Adoptees Connect facilitator here. He's friend to so many and and um, like close friend like fa and family to so many Colombian adoptees in the area too. He's someone everybody everybody knows Diego. Um, I've had the pleasure of supporting a course alongside Diego for Adoption Mosaic, and I just was regularly inspired by his critical thinking, insights, fearlessness when it comes to looking at his own adoption and then calling out problems in the modern adoption industry and family systems. So welcome, Diego. Julian, hi, Julian, <laughs> is a Baby Scoop era domestic adoptee. He was relinquished and adopted into a closed adoption as an infant and relinquished and adopted in a second closed adoption at the age of nine. Uh, Julian has had a lifelong commitment to healing and growth. He's done all kinds of interesting things. He's wonderful to talk to, toured the United States by bicycle, lived in Buddhist and Catholic monasteries. Um, he currently resides in a small cabin with his wife, Lisa, behind a, mo a monastery um, in the coastal wilderness of Big Sur, California. He has a master's degree in theology and a focus on monastic studies. He blogs at the Peregrine Adoptee, and he's been making great strides on a memoir. I get to have sneak peeks because he's an adoptee voices writer, um, and he explores the intersection of adopt adoption, healing, and spirituality. Um, so welcome, Julian. Happy to have you. 
Kayla. Hi, Kayla. Kayla Chung is a transracial, transcultural, intercountry adoptee uh, who was born in China in 1998. Uh, she spent some time in an orphanage before being adopted um, to the United States. She's published a lot of writing for intercountry adoptee voices around the privilege, power, and systemic oppressive policies that are um, that uphold the adoption industrial complex. Uh, she's written a lot about her experiences of religious trauma and abuse. She's also spoken on various panels. I've gotten to hear her powerful writing through the Adoptive Voices Writing Group, and I will say that Kayla is definitely a change maker. Uh, she is coming to us tonight for us, uh, early morning for her, um, from her homeland of China, where she's pursuing postgraduate studies at the very prestigious Peking University. It's a C9 school, Ivy League equivalent, uh, where she'll be conducting, I think, Kayla, you've called it the research of your dreams. So, uh, so happy you're here. Thank you for coming. Rich Erlob, hi Rich, is an adoptee relinquished and adopted at three weeks old who does just amazing things for, for adoptees um, and, um, and, a, well, and the whole of the wide community for legislative reform and supporting anyone who's in the process of search and finding identity. Um, I think it's been over a couple of decades of work doing that, Rich, so um, tireless, wonderful work. Um, he's served on the boards of many adoption-related organizations right now, currently serving as the president of the Adoption or the Adoption Search Resource Connection and the Coalition for Truth and Transparency in Adoption. Um, he's been part of a team that's seen multiple bills signed into law um, to the benefit of adoptees, parents by birth and adoption, foster youth, and more recently with a historic bill passage for donor-conceived persons. Um, you've presented at so many conferences nationwide. Your writing's been published in a lot of um, a lot of places. I know Ridge, as well as several adoptee anthologies. So it's an honor to have you here. Thank you for joining us. And Susan Harness uh, is so happy to have you here joining us while you're traveling today, Susan. So thank you for taking the time. Uh, Susan is a member of the Confederated Salish and Kootenai tribes. She spent the first 18 months of life with her birth family before being adopted by a white couple. Her story as a transracial American Indian adoptee is detailed in her award-winning memoir, Bitter Root, a Salish memoir of transracial adoption. In addition, Susan's also a scholar with an anthropological perspective that's really important um, from both a historical perspective around the Indian Adoption Project as well as the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, she's appeared on the TEDx Mile High Stage, and she regularly speaks about the need for transracial adoption reform. So thank you, Susan. Glad you're here. Okay, those are my people. <laughs> Kelsey, let's get to know yours. <laughs> All right. Okay. Let's see. I'm going to go down my list too, because I'm like looking at, it's overwhelming to be like, okay, pick out everybody. Um, so I'll start with Candice. Candace is here. I saw Candace. She is here. Okay. Candace Cahill is a birth mom um, who lost her son twice, once to relinquishment, and then not long after reunion 20 years later. And she's the author of a new memoir um, called Goodbye Again. Um, Amy Seek, Amy Wave, um, is a birth mom in an open adoption, and she lives in New York. And she's also the author of God and Jetfire, Confessions of a Birth Mother. Erica Gonzalez 
is a birth mom and an open adoption. And she lives in Northern California. Melissa Latheon, wave Melissa, <laughs> is a birth mom and is in reunion with her adult son. And she's also a mother baby nurse. Is that right, Melissa? If it, I couldn't remember if it's labor delivery or mother baby, mother baby nurse in Northern Indiana. And she also leads a support group up in South Bend, Indiana as well for birth moms. Um, Chelsea Moore is a birth mom in a semi-open closed adoption. And she lives in Oregon. Mathani is a birth mom in an open adoption and she lives in Texas. And I think that's everybody. That's my people. Lori. All right. Let me introduce you to the third part of the triangle. If we were dealing with a mirror triangle, um, I want to start with my dear friend, Rebecca Valley. Um, Rebecca, give a little wave so people can see. Rebecca is an adoptive parent to three. She lives here in Colorado with me. Um, she's about three years ahead of her journey than I am. And so I've learned so much from her. Rebecca is the founder of the Family to Family Support Network which is right now doing an amazing, amazing interview series with people from everywhere um, called Coming Together for Families. And if you haven't checked that out yet, I would encourage you to go to Instagram and find F2F support and look that up. I uh, So many good things have come to me from my friendship with Rebecca. So I'm really glad to have you here, Rebecca. Um, I want to talk next about Alicia. Alicia Air Martinez is an adoptive parent, and she's probably my oldest friend on here because we actually met at adoption school uh, when we were uh, in competition, except not really because she already had a designated adoption. Uh, 20 some years ago, we are both now parenting um, two children, adult children, um, in uh, that we, we've kind of made the, the journey to, to getting our children to be um, functional on their own. And we have learned, both learned so much along the way. Alicia is the um, author of the upcoming book, The Gifts of Openness. And she has lived for more than 20 years um, with this open heart and this open um, making room for everybody in her daughter's family and, and, and making seats at the table. And um, it's just really been a pleasure to, to learn alongside her. Um, I want to bring up uh, Beth. Beth is probably one of my newest friends in this space. Beth Syverson is an adoptive parent to uh, a son who is also a new adult, um, Joey. And she and Joey have a podcast called Safe Home Podcast um, at his request. Is that right, Beth? And um, they are figuring out uh adoption issues trauma issues mental health issues and all sorts of things and beth has gone all in on uh, moving from this the simplistic narrative of all you need is love to something else um, so i'm really happy to have beth's input on things leslie malloy um leslie give a wave i'm so appreciative to leslie for um, reaching out to me with we're friends on Facebook and some groups and we have been talking about the insecurity that some adoptive parents face and what that does and how to um, ease that and move through that so I'm really grateful for your vulnerability with that Leslie. 
My next two members who are here today are not adoptive parents, but their voices are so important to this conversation. First is Jess Tennant. Jess, give a wave. Jess was trying to adopt for a long time. And as um, anybody who has tried to adopt knows, getting on the adoption roller coaster is really easy. Getting off of it is not. And as for somebody who decided not to adopt by choice, to know what she faced, I think is really important. So that's a voice that Jess brings. My final guest is Jen Winkleman, special place in my heart for Jen Winkleman. Jen Winkleman is a Colorado person as well. Jen Winkleman is a, an adoption competent therapist who taught me so much about the shame core of adoption and so many other things, attachment. Um, she's gonna help me with a chapter about all of that and what adoptive parents need to do to, um, as Rebecca Bali has, has said in uh, work that I've done with her, do your own work, people. So I just feel so, so um, privileged to bring these voices forth. So as we get into the next part of our agenda, um, I want to say that everybody here has agreed to some community guidelines. And these guidelines are intended to help us all foster curiosity, openness, and a deep-seated desire to understand each other's points of view. It's through this understanding and the compassion that comes with understanding that we can reform and improve practices around adoption, meaning within people's homes as well as with policies and laws around the country. This is what we're hoping to do. So for just a moment, let me speak mostly to the adoptive parents who are tuning in, who are, who are watching this video, but perhaps to everybody. If you find yourself in this conversation triggered by something, notice it and then later look back at it with some curiosity. See what the trigger might be trying to tell you. What information is there for you? What, if any, inner work might be there for you to do? This is one of the recurring themes of every guest on my podcast episode, as well as an entire chapter on our book, which is about doing your own work, people. Thank you so much, Jen Winkleman. So in this first roundtable, we are talking with each other about this topic. What is the biggest aha that you've had about adoption? And per our community guidelines, we're going to hear from adoptees first. It's Damon. If you're accepting volunteers, I'll go ahead and jump in. Is that all right? That's great. Thanks, Damon. Of course. Um, I think it's really challenging to limit it to just one. So if you don't mind, I'm going to open up with taking the liberty of offering three, and I could probably offer 20. Uh, but here are the ones that come to my mind, first of all. the One of my biggest ahas was the fact that there was even an idea of a blank slate for a child. I just never had that. I, I never could have guessed as an adopted person that that was a thing that people were told. Um, and then coinciding with that and on this is still number one, I think is uh, the nature versus nurture, right? The idea that coming from the idea that there was a blank slate, you would end up raising a child who might not be just like you and that there's a very deep element of nature that is impossible for people to combat. You are who you are and that's because of who you come from. And certainly the, the exposure to life experiences changes us a bit. But I think there's a, a great deal of um, credit that needs to be given to nature in our lives. The second thing that comes to mind for me is how traumatic adoption is 
for not just the adoptee, but for everybody. I really hadn't thought about it deeply until I started talking to a gang of people. I've talked to 183 people for the show, and it's been adoptive uh, parent. It's been adoptees, adoptees who are also adoptive parents, adoptees who are also birth parents. And in the stories that I've heard, you hear so many elements of trauma for everybody involved, for mothers who were forced to relinquish or place a child, for adoptees who, as was said previously, haven't had a chance to actually speak up until now in adulthood. And, and so our choices were sort of left out. And you know, given the choice, I'm quite sure any one of us um, you know, crying babies or in foster care would have said, I'd really like to go back to my mom. So I thought that the the idea that ad adoption is a traumatic across the board is is really sort of eye-opening for me. And then the third one is reunion comes in way more flavors than I actually realized. There are so many different reunion stories out there that it's remarkable to try to even categorize them uh, because if you just try to make it black and white, very binary, good and bad, that's totally inaccurate because some of them start off bad and end up good. And some of them start off good and end up bad. And there's a whole variety of combinations in between. So those are the three things that I would offer as some of my biggest ahas in exploring adoption from this perspective. And I just want to say one more thing. I'm also an adoptive parent. So I've experienced two elements of what we're talking about here. Uh, it's it just it's eye opening to be in this seat and have both experiences and speak with uh, people across the the triad and and across the whole constellation about what it is to be part of adoption. So I'll stop there. That's really great, Damon. Thank you. And I should have mentioned that in your introduction. Thank you for um, reminding me and everyone else about your dual roles, um, because that's important. We have others with dual roles too. And that's um, fascinating to, to be, be privy to both sides of the equation. I really liked what you said about the blank slate. And I just wanted to just comment because that was one thing when I was, um, I was always told, well, you were only two days old. And it was kind of that blank slate kind of message. And so it made me feel like, oh, okay. You know, like, I mean, I just kind of discounted anything previous because it's like, oh, okay, only, those only only two days. <laughs> but um, but you're right. There's there's a whole a history, a life, the connections that all precede that, that get ignored in that. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to say just really briefly, Damon, about how much I appreciate what you said about the black and white um, that is not black and white, and that's a theme I return to again and again as I as I work on my chapters of this book with my people. Is that it's simplistic? It's so simplistic our our current view, society's current view of adoption, and that is the biggest thing that gets in our way of reform. I think is that people just think it's good or bad, and mostly good, and so they are hesitant to look into the nuances and the shades of gray. And the more we can bring bring that forth. Um, that's, that's one of the reasons I'm so excited about working on this book. So thank you for saying yeah. that, Damon. Of course. I think there's a lack of empathy because people don't put themselves in other people's shoes to try to understand where they're coming from. And so it's very easy to just assume, oh, like, why would you care? You were only two years old. Well, you haven't, you've forgotten the part where my mom and I were separated in that two-day period, right? So there's a lot of empathy that needs to coincide with 
the entirety of the reform process. I'd love to hear from somebody else. Who else has got some contributions here? This is Rich. Hello, everybody, and thanks for the warm welcome. Um, I thought a lot about this because it, to say what's your biggest aha is uh, a totally unfair and merciless question. I just want to lodge my protest right now. <laughs> but I get why you had to do it. Um, I, th I think to kind of tag along with what the theme of the conversation is so far, one of my biggest early ahas was I went to a meeting of adoptees in search and Ron Nidham, who is a therapist, was speaking. And the topic was relinquishment and adoption are two different things. And in our modern vernacular, we tend to lump them both into the same big word of adoption. But as he explained the dynamics of separation and trauma and loss uh, with relinquishment combined with a whole wide range of experiences that adoptees have in their adopted families, it really opened up my mind to sort out, <clears throat> sort out some of the dynamics going on in my own brain. So that was a real opening point for me. And then on the tail end of it, and there's been a whole lot of work and blood and sweat and tears in between, but on the tail end of it, um, Lori and I have talked about this a lot. Adoption is a both and kind of a thing. It's not an either or kind of a thing because we're living in a world where um, one scholarly article that came out a while back said that the, the adoptee's primary task in life, their, our primary psychological developmental task is to integrate the truth and the stories of our two families into us. And that takes an incredible amount of work, especially if you don't have half of that story. Um, but at the end or toward the end of that journey, I found my birth family. I've been involved with a lot of things, um, as, as the, the bio said. But um, toward the end of it, it gets simpler and simpler as the, as the camera zooms back out to a big picture instead of the smaller details. And it's, it's almost cliche, and it's in no way negating or minimizing what we deal with or what we go through. But in terms of the path to healing, the, my two biggest ahas have been, one, adopted or not, everybody gets a pebble in their shoe. And again, this is not minimizing, but everybody's got something. And that's helped me to realize, you know, if it hadn't been this, this story, I would have had another story. And that's what's helped to make me into, and shape me into the person I am. And the other piece of that is that um, reflectively speaking, the less time we have to spend agonizing and obsessing about the things we cannot change and had no control over, the sooner we can live a, a fuller, happier life. Grief is real and we got to take whatever time it takes to get through it. But the, the less time we have to spend on the what ifs and the why nots and this was so unfair and just get into here's what is and what can I do with what is. Um, I think the healthier we become as a community, the healthier we become as individuals and the more effective we are as change agents in the community. So I also broke the rule. Sorry.
No apologies. Thank you, Rich. Thank you for sharing. Um, yeah, that's, um, and that's a really good point. And when you were mentioning relinquishment and adoption are two different things It also my brain was also spinning because I know, you know, we have so many words that, um, you know, just, I was even just thinking of vocabulary in this room, like, you know, I mean, relinquishment isn't, 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 a, isn't the word a lot of us use and some of us, it is the word we use. So um, that just kind of reminded me of something that there might be different feelings around even that. So, um, but I appreciate Absolutely. it. And, and I use it as the legal term, not whether or not it was truly voluntary or not. I'm, I'm talking about either there was a relinquishment or there was a termination of parental rights. And so from a legal standpoint, so thank you for clarifying that. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> thank you for having this round table. This is, this is awesome. It's really nice to see um, faces to the names that I recognize in the various uh, parts of the world that I inhabit. Um, I'm going to uh, agree with Damon here. It's, it's difficult to pick the aha moment. Um, so what I'd like to do is, um, first I'd like to say, I, and then a lot of these things occurred to me later in life. And I, and I think that that was a survival mechanism is just to really buy into the, I am fine. <laughs> Everything's fine. We're all fine here. And uh, and it wasn't until I, I really started working on my book and I really started working on some uh, of the other writing where I began to realize things are not fine. Things are not rosy. Um, one of the first ones was how much we remember from before. So I was removed from my family when I was 18 months old. And, um, and I, <clears throat> you know, to me, that's, that's just how, how much do you really know at 18 months old? But I can remember, um, I live not very far away from where I was raised. And I can remember driving up this valley and every time I'd look across the valley, I would look at this one hillside and I'd think, oh, wouldn't that be interesting to live there? And I knew it was on the reservation, um, but I didn't know anything about it. But I just kept saying for years, oh, you know, that would be so interesting to live there. Well, when I um, finally had a chance to sit down in my 50s with um, one of my uncles, he took me to the homestead. And the homestead was in that place where I just looked and I said, I wonder what it would be like to live on that hillside. And that blew my mind because there was nowhere else in the valley that I ever, ever had those thoughts. Another thing that was mind blowing is when I did my reunion, I did my reunion in my early 30s. And there's this concept of, you know, blood will recognize blood. And, you know, we're going to run into each other's arms and we're going to say, oh my gosh, you know, we've missed you. And, um, and that's not really how that went. I mean, it didn't go awful. It was just kind of like, my brother said, why are you coming back? There's absolutely nothing here. Just take a look around you. 
And my uncle said, you need to be, you need to be um, grateful that you got out. A lot of people here didn't get out. Um, and those were not things that I was expecting to hear, but those are the realities of a reservation life. And I think that's what I had to come to terms with. Um, and um, it, that was just really eye-opening. Um, a third thing was, I just, um, I never thought about attachment disorder. And I, I knew my sister, I'd known her since we were in our thirties and, you know, my sister, oh yeah, she had attachment disorder because she didn't attach to anybody. She was always on the run. And um, she and I would kind of do this dance and you know, we'd come together and then for whatever reason, she would just drop out of my life, like gone. And then <clears throat> months or, or a couple of years later, she would drop back in. And I began to realize that I was, I was the string of the yo-yo. She just, every time she would leave, she would come back. And that's a really easy way to say, well, she's got attachment disorder. It didn't dawn on me what an attachment disorder looked like for me. The attachment disorder looked like, and I'm not even gonna call it a disorder. I don't even know what to call it. Attachment uh, behavior. How about if we just say attachment behavior? Um, attachment behavior for me is that I was ultra attached to my adoptive mom, just really ultra attached to her. And I think a lot of that comes from the fact that she was the person that I could count on to be there. And I, that comes from one of those really early memories of waking up in a crib and staring at this doorway and just staring at it. And it was daytime, so I was obviously waking up from a nap, but just staring at it and staring at it. And I was waiting. And I can remember the door opened just a little bit and my adopted mom, who to me was just, you know, at that point, it was, I recognized her face. I didn't really have a name for it, but she looked in and I remember feeling so overjoyed. I was so overjoyed to see that. And as I got to know my, my first mom, I realized, I could never count on the same person coming through that door. It might be her, might be a grandparent, might be an aunt or an uncle. It might be somebody entirely different. So that was my, my attachment behavior. But when I really saw that it was um, something different, my husband and I had gone to the Grand Canyon. This was just a few years ago. And, you know, it's just one too many days in a car with two people. And so I can't remember what we did, but we get up there and we start bickering. And I was just like, okay, you know, I just, I just need to leave and, you know, just take five minutes. And, and he said, well, I'm going to go for a walk. It's like, fine, just go for your walk. 
you know, we were so mature in the middle of these arguments. And so he, he takes off and he's not gone 10 minutes, but all of a sudden, now keep in mind, I'm, I'm like 60 years old. All of a sudden I sit there and go, what if he doesn't come back? Like, what if he doesn't come back? What am I going to do? Where am I? How am I going to get home? Like the weirdest, weirdest questions started coming into my mind. Like, <laughs> like who thinks that? Well, you know, somebody who uh, has had people leave and not understand why. You know, they, they are out of a life and they don't know why. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think for me, my aha moments are probably going to continue until the day I die because, um, because I think I'm finally at an age where it's just like, yeah, this stuff happens. <laughs> um. Yeah, I'll name two things. I think for me, um, as, a, as a double adoptee, it was really surprising when I connected with the adoptee community to find that I had so much in common, so many common traits and challenges as other adoptees. Um, uh, I knew that I, I lived a very difficult and traumatizing life, but I never, I never really ascribed that to being adopted as an infant. Like, I, I didn't um i didn't think that that mattered all that much until um i started realizing that um that it was really foundational for me and that um yeah adoptees are my people the other thing i wanted to name um which is which is more current um i would say just the the power of things hidden other people have have mentioned being treated as a blank slate so that happened to me twice. So I had uh, two families basically hidden from me. I was treated as if they never existed, as if I never existed until I was nine years old. And um, the more I heal, the more I explore that, the more I realize how much of me I've left behind um, and how much those parts of me that got left behind have been so present um, in one form or another. So, um, you know, I'm, I mean, I, I think right now I'm very focused on what it means to, to reclaim those parts of me, um, the pre-adoption me, the pre-second adoption me. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, Julian. Thank you for sharing. Any birth parents? Nathani? I'd be open to sharing. Not to call you out, but to call you out. Go ahead, Chelsea. I'll go next. <laughs> <laughs> um, the aha moments are hard for me too, um, but I think the biggest thing for me was jumping into working in adoption like a year post-placement from placing my daughter um, and what's a semi-open adoption but feels mostly closed um, was doing that adoption or placing my daughter for adoption in Texas and then moving to Oregon, working for a very open, like 
liberal agency, I would call it, and kind of being in the throes of like all these open adoptions and, you know, going to trainings and working with adoptees. And then all of a sudden my aha was like, what the heck did I do? Um, or in other words, like what did my agency do is how I really felt in that not providing me with, um, you know, accurate information and knowledge. And um, my biggest thing is I remember when I said, you know, when they said, well, you can have a closed semi-open or open. And I said, well, I don't want to confuse her or intrude. And it was like, oh, okay, well, you know, a semi-open adoption might be a good fit then. And then realizing later the normalcy around open adoption and what that can look like to then feel like you make this really big mistake, not in necessarily relinquishment, but in the plan that you created and how are you setting up your child to succeed when you're made out to be making this brave, wonderful, strong decision that like the media and certain, you know, outlets like to throw at you um, to then be like, uh, no, I absolutely did not, you know, make all the right choices. And um, my aha was like, if I can turn this around and figure this out after having been handholding these other families in these open adoption relationships, you know, what can I do? And whenever I started um, digging into that with the agency and the adoptive family getting a big door in my face, I was going, there's so much more reform that's needed. And where can my voice come into this? And um, my daughter being at the forefront, like there's, there's got to be some change in this. And that was my aha moment. I'll keep mine short. I'm not a big talker, so I apologize. Um, I think for me, my, I guess, initial big aha moment was um, the grief that would come with making the decision to place my daughter. I, for the first two years, didn't even grieve at all. I was kind of in the throes of being the poster child for <laughs> adoption and birth moms and um, my agency. So I think I didn't have the support I needed to kind of kickstart the grief. And so when it finally hit me, that was a lot, so. I'll make mine short and sweet too. I've just got a couple points. Um, for me, um, 23 years almost post-placement. And I think for many, many years initially, I was definitely alone in the journey. And so probably about six, seven years ago, the aha moments for me were realizing that there was a lot of um, unknown support out there for birth moms um, within the community and how there was a lack of how to connect those resources and get those birth moms connected um, to help support them and to help them not become what, what some agencies have coined repeat customers or um, to perpetuate those habits, those poor choices that we made, some of us um, that led to coming to an adoption decision. Um, and then working in healthcare in the last 11 years, I think the other aha, aha moment for me, um, being a nurse um, in the OB world, um, and also now a nurse educator, 
and my dear friend Rebecca could probably attest um, is just, I think the lack of responsibility that healthcare even takes in the involvement of when these adoptions occur, especially within a hospital setting. I know they don't always occur that way, but that policies and the lack of education, how policies are worded and how they're very biased and how it seems very one-sided. So that's, that's been my aha moment. The final one is just reunion has been a roller coaster and there truly is no handbook for it. There's no handbook as we know for adoption and our journeys as we navigate it. Um, but just what knowing what's to come next and how to prepare for it, there really is no other way other than to support one another and hear those stories continue to be shared. Um, because it's truly not all rainbows and roses and feel goods. There's moments where it's just out downright awful. And that was that was a hot, truly an aha moment for me. And also recognizing all of that trauma that so many of you have already described. I think the trauma aspect was something that was not really um, maybe displayed or openly shared with me and discussed. And so recognizing that and doing my work through that has been important as well. Thank you. I think Damon's got his hand raised. Yeah. Yeah. Just if you don't mind, Melissa, could you say one more word or two about the policies being out of balance and very one-sided? I think most of us are not in the healthcare space and I don't have a good feel for what you mean. Do you mind just sharing another word or two about the, the imbalance of policy inside the hospital system or healthcare system? Well, so most agencies or adoption attorneys um, tend to make their first connection um, with the hospitals prior to the adoptions even occurring, prior to the baby even being born. Of course, that's when there is a plan in place or potential plan in place. And so there's already connections being made leading up to the expectant mother even arriving. And so there's all these decisions in, in essentially either being made or that have already been made without even having met her and discussing it with her. And so being a voice, being able to say, we need to always honor her first and treat her because she's the patient. And then that baby that's being born is also the patient. The hopeful prospective adoptive parents are no, not our priority. They are not the patient. They are not the ones who have assumed custody of this child yet. And so also recognizing that things don't have to happen in the hospital either. Um, we have, I think, a duty to advocate for our patients and recognizing that maybe that's not always the most appropriate time for decisions, especially highly emotional driven decisions to be made. So um, just looking at that and how policies are even worded, um, It looks like Melissa froze, but I will just say, I appreciate her sharing that. That was really clarifying for me. So thank you. I can come back to um, Kelsey, your um, first mother, birth mother people, but I was wondering if Rebecca on the tales of hospital policy, do you want to say something either about, you kind of wear two hats. You wear the hat of as an adoptive mom, you might have a different aha there, but do you have an aha as an adoption educator in, in the hospital setting? I do. I, um, Melissa stated it all very, very well. There is um, a 
focus on the adoption, but not necessarily on the patient. And so much of our work is getting that power and the voice back to the patient so that it's not an event to be orchestrated, but instead something that patient is initiating and is taking full control over. And so I think when she talks about those policies, that that's really what we see is the policies are either very much slanted towards uh, following the adoption plan or they're slanted towards being silent which means that we have any given um, attitude, agenda, whatever, coming to the bedside of a, of a mom considering adoption, if the potential adoptive families are there, kind of working with them. And so it makes for really inconsistent care. And we often say, where else in the hospital do we just allow healthcare professionals to wing it? They don't like winging it, but we really fight to get um, training in there. And so we're still, and we're still doing that. So um, I'll just try, chime in with my other two thoughts, Lori. Um, one of them is tied to healthcare. And I was talking to someone today about trying to get the uh, understanding of first moms and birth moms and the loss that takes place in the hospital. And I have to go back to how we've changed bereavement for women that go through and families that go through infant loss and how when the baby died, we would just wish the baby's body away and the mom went to the end of the hall and no one would talk about it. And I was with my friend this weekend that has gone through two full-term infant losses. And she said, yeah, no one would even talk to me. And now we look at empowering patients in the loss of adoption. And I really, I struggle to get people to have that same conversation about a an adoption decision in the hospital, they're willing to talk if a baby dies, but they're not willing to talk about what if a mom is pursuing adoption and how do we give her the power in that loss and grief. So that was my aha from today. I felt very much like Rich and I think, Damon, you mentioned like, I have an aha every day. So that was my aha about healthcare today. And then as an adoptive parent, I think my aha is that I just will never replace my kids' parents. Like, I think that um, hashtag not in the brochure, we often say in my work. And I think setting families up to think that this is the same and I'm just going to step in and take her spot is so inaccurate and unfair. And in the same way, that child's not going to take the spot of my bio child on the other side of infertility. And that's too big a job for a kiddo to heal my heart. Um, so if I could speak to parents going into this, it's like, honor your child's process, give them space to share every step and deal with your stuff people. Those are like my only things to say because we can't fix it for our kids. We can just honor their process. So those are my couple of ahas. And thanks for having me here. I, this is my first time and I feel like I'm learning so much, but I'm so thrilled to hear this healthcare thing because that was my biggest thing when I, I, I was made to feel kind of like this vulture in the hospital, you know, and my birth mom and I, my daughter's birth mother and I, um, set it up so we would all be there and it was it seemed really healthy and wonderful but then in the hospital I just it wasn't good they didn't I feel like they didn't take care of her very well they were paying attention to me and I hated it and so um, I just kept saying what about her what about you know is she fine and and I felt horrible going with the baby to be cleaned up and she was having you know I was just it was awful so this discussion to me just feels so amazing and empowering and I'm really glad I get to be in on this group. I'm coming every time now, Lori, so just watch out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that, Alice. Diego. 
Yes, uh, thanks to everybody for sharing is uh, obviously just a whole lot of wisdom and um, knowledge uh, experience that's here. So um, very appreciative to be here as well. And like everybody else, I kind of just echo the idea that there's one single aha moment to really drill down to is like, oh, because I, I keep hearing everybody I'm like, oh, I could go there. I could go there. I could dive, deep dive on that and all of it. Um, and I'm trying to pick of which one I want to go with, but I'm going to I'm going to stick with this idea of what I have experienced so much is the depersonalization that <laughs> that adoption places on, especially the adoptive excuse me, the adoptee and the birth parents. Um, and it's a, it centers adoption as an industry. And it's an industry that loves to hear all the praise and accolades that come with this idea of this whole new thing. I don't even, that whole new thing is so complex, right? But whenever there's a mirror put in their, in their face about the things that are not appropriate and okay and disruptive and traumatic uh, for adoptees and birth parents in this process, there's all, all of a sudden this sense of amnesia or this sense of like not wanting to sit in a uh, acknowledgement uh, space. So for me, you know, we always hear that adoption is trauma. I personally don't believe that the adoption is the trauma. We have to get down to the granular parts of this and understand that it is the separation trauma that adoptees experience through this process, that that's what we carry through us. Now, there is and can be trauma in adoption and through depending on the adoptive family that an adoptee goes, to, uh, goes into. And we've seen plenty of stories of horrific situations that have happened to adoptees because of their uh, adoptive parents. So it's, it's a complex you know, matter, but I, it's a whole idea of centering the adoption industry. And I hate that. I hate that part of it. So I try and remove adoption from every part of my vernacular as much as possible and definitely use the terms adoptee. And in, in my own practice, uh, I started my practice name is named Adoptee Focused Therapy for in, in that intention. We need to put the adoptee voices first. If there's a birth parent focused therapy, great, do that because you have to have that space to be able to hear your voice instead of coming in and saying, well, I'm hearing this because of this outside noise around me and I'm being shaped by that, but I'm not really having my voice through that. I need to actually have my voice. And so hopefully we continue to have these spaces uh, to be able to explore these things a lot more. So thank you. Thank you, Diego. Um, very well articulated. And Rich, Rich, you said that as well. Well said, Diego. Thank you. Okay, Candace and then Amy. Um, yeah, so in terms of, uh, there's so many, <laughs> so many lessons, so many aha moments, many of them, I, I pretty much everybody I've related to. But for me, it was really came down to when he died and, and being faced with after the brief reunion and having only met one time, now dealing with his death and that being, or at least my perception of it being an acceptable thing to grieve. And as I'm grieving, realizing that there was absolutely no way I could separate the grief of his relinquishment. Um, but I had been 
I had bought into all of it for all of those years. I had bought into the rainbows and unicorns and that this was a beautiful thing and, and the, the blank slate and all the things. And, and it was a huge crash, a huge crash. Um, so that for sure has been my, my biggest aha. And there have been, it's like a rolling blackout of ahas, <laughs> you know, coming out of the fog. Um, and I'm, what I'm most grateful for really is being able to be in spaces like this to in particular hear and listen to adoptive voices who are able to articulate the experiences that they've had and the, the lived experiences and be, being in a place where I can hear it and, and listen. Yeah. Thank you for that, Candice. I, I liked that description of the rolling blank blackout of ahas. That's so true. Uh, so true. Thank you. Amy. Um, yes. <clears throat> I I am in an open adoption of, of 20 years, and I think that the 22 years now and the um, recent aha has been that the visits um, in the visits, I wasn't really seeing what was going on. I was really looking for um, his, the damage, um, and I simply didn't see it. And it's partly a consequence of his age um, at the time, but it's only been since um, he's been 18 that the whole thing has kind of um, opened up and, <clears throat> I am experiencing a new loss because of our strange closeness that is still trying to, um, that still has this whole missing part. Um, and the, but because, so the complexity of open adoption is really the, um, the aha. Um, but the extent to which, because we have had communication that's been very consistent through his whole life, there's a um, degree to which we're both processing adoption together. And I know that there may be a moment when he's mad at me, but right now it seems that his understanding um, has made it so that we're both, I feel like we're children together and we're just being like, whoa, what happened? Um, so that, that was a big one. The other one that I wanted to say was just, I wish that they could tell you in the, um, in the little pamphlets that they give the birth mothers, the intricacies of the ways that the grief will impact your life. I thought I'll have my great life. I'm choosing this great life. Um, and he's going to be taken care of. And I, thought that the whole of grief would be somewhere, um, but it would be separate from this great life that I had chosen. And I mean, I, the amount of anger I've experienced at my profession, like I chose this profession, I wanted to do this profession and be successful. I have so much anger. So I have such a conflicted relationship with my job. So every moment I'm sitting at work, there's adoption. Of course, every romantic relationship, every best friendship you know it all um is affected my um family life and the fact that I didn't have children um it all are it all adds up to um you know significant impacts that came from adoption that had they told me you're actually not going to get that profession 
you're going to get that profession plus a whole that makes being in that profession really complicated. And if I had known that he's not going to show you anything about the pain until he's way too old to, um, you know, fix it. Um, I also, you know, they didn't tell me he was going to have pain. Amy, and I, of course, mm -hmm. I was just going to say, thank you for sharing. And it just, um, there's so much delayed grief in adoption, isn't there? I think mm -hmm. that's such a common for, for birth parents and adoptees alike, and, and maybe for adoptive parents, I guess a question, but. I saw a lot of nodding heads there too. Yeah. Damon. I wanted to go back to something that Susan said that was eye-opening for me as well as the amount of assumed gratitude that people think any one of us is supposed to have. And I'm, I'm going to focus on the birth parents here for a moment because I know that the adoptees get it a lot. Oh, you should be so glad that you were adopted, right? Oh, really? <laughs> but I'm wondering if the birth mothers here have had that same thing placed on them that Aren't you so glad that's over? Did you, was there any of that for you? Yeah, can I answer even though I'm a co-host? Yeah, yeah. Um, always from our family, speaking for myself, obviously, my family, uh, aren't you so glad that, you know, you don't have to be a single mom and aren't you so glad from other people that you um, did this for this other family and aren't you just grateful that you've got a new lease on life and you've got a chance to um, when I got married aren't you so glad that you did that so because you would have never met your husband and when I had my daughter aren't you so glad that you know you did that so that you can have a chance to be a, a mom and not um, make your children struggle along with you and like obviously the list goes on but yeah like you know um, and, and my dad, I'm the uh, daughter of an adoptee and I've seen mm. people say it to my dad and, and even to us, like if he would have never been adopted, you guys wouldn't exist. <laughs> like, it's just like, it, yeah, if my grandmother had wheels, she'd be a bicycle. Like what, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like right. we can say that for anything. So yeah, that's right. I appreciate you saying that because it just it just hit me as I was sitting here and I was thinking this gratitude thing is assumed probably way wider than I really realize. And I'm really appreciate that you put that out there. That's important stuff. Thanks so much. Leslie, what would you like to say? Um, first, I'm humbled and thanks everyone for sharing their perspectives. Um, I guess my aha moment is, well, you know, you talk about the dialogue that's presented to various components of the triad. And as a person that is a parent blessed because they were chosen, um, whatever that might mean um, by my children's birth parents, you know, I had this image of what it was, right? I couldn't find any information other than what I could read and it's very biased and my aha moment was when my daughter, who's now five, um, was born and we were in the room. Um, that was a part of the whole plan that we had all discussed, birth mom, and we were all very interactive. And um, seeing my daughter, her holding our daughter, and I was like, whoa, this is not, 
there were no words to describe what this woman felt and her handing our daughter. And I just, to this, it completely changed what I thought this was and my role and everything that I've done or I've been trying, I make mistakes, right? Um, it's been because of them. It's, it's because it was because of that one moment. And, you know, I'm a part of two adoptions and they're both look very different and the reasons behind them are very different. But I mean, it's amazing as an adoptive parent, I'm the only person I know that's adopted personally. I knew no one and explaining, you know, I've had people come up to me, oh my gosh, she's so lucky to have you. I'm like, whoa, whoa, time out. Like, it just, it almost like makes my skin crawl. I mean, I love my daughter more than life itself. I would do anything for her, but you know what? I would do anything for her birth mom. You know, we have a very, we have an open adoption, two open adoptions. And I just, I explain that to people who don't know anything about it. And they kind of look at me like I have a third eye, like, really? Like you talk to them, like you go on vacation and meet up with them. Like you have them stay in your house. Like, like I'm doing so I just, I just, I don't even know what I'm saying. I just, I have so much to say. And I just, it's not, it's just, it's, it's, it, it definitely needs to be reformed. I just, I don't even have the words to put with the emotions right now. So I'll stop. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Leslie. I know it's, it is a big aha when it becomes real and not hypothetical anymore and not what everybody told you it would be. Um, Rebecca, you've got your hand up. Yeah, just quickly, I want to, um, I've been learning so much since the pandemic and we've started tackling maternal mortality and morbidity. And I had this amazing black nurse out of Atlanta who is a rock star in this area. And she has taken such on the emotional cost of teaching me as we co-teach together as this white woman from Colorado that knows nothing and spending time with Kelsey, Kelsey, I'm, I'm going to give you your, um, yeah, just thanks to you to continue to help me understand that. Thank you to, to the adoptees and the birth moms because in the birth parents, because I, I don't think that ad adoptive parents truly understand the amount of emotional um, the cost to you to go to these places and to be willing to share with us. And I had this flash when I was with Kelsey last week, and we were talking about what this does to them as birth parents and how, how emotionally taxing that is. And I had flashes to my co-teacher, you know, my co-speaker Rose talking about what an emotional hit that makes to her to try to explain racism to people and microaggressions. And, um, I'm just thankful. I'm thankful to be here, but I'm also just, I want to acknowledge the cost to those of you that are here and reliving this loss. And um, I just want to acknowledge that and, and thank you for being willing to do that for the benefit of reform and the benefit for those of us that are walking this path with our kids or young adults. So that's all. Thanks so much, Rebecca. Jess, I'm so glad to see you raise your hand. Go ahead. I I feel a little strange speaking, honestly, because I was looking to become an adoptive parent. And I feel like the thing that I'm hearing so much and that I felt that was kind of like my aha was again, the simplicity and the massive marketing <laughs> behind the adoption kind of industry that makes it so that it seems so simple to everyone around you that like this is this is easy and someone's made a very beautiful choice and of course you'll be a wonderful parent and then the deeper my husband and I got into 
the adoption process, it was like, oh, this is not at all what I thought it was going to be. And it, yeah, just adopt, exactly. And um, and I started getting some of those messages of like, well, what do you mean you're not being chosen? Why, why are they the ones choosing? Why aren't you choosing? And I was like, whoa, that's awful. But it feels like the simplicity of it and the simplicity of the way that adoption agencies always at their orientations will bring out like the least complex situation ever where it's like the agency I was with had birth parents coming out and talking about how how neat it was and and there was always kind of this feeling of see it's it's great it's wonderful and it will all work out for everyone and and sometimes it would feel a little bit like marching this like visual of what everyone wanted it to be so when I left it um after you know more than two years it was like people couldn't understand that and I think that goes with the simplicity because for me the biggest aha was the deeper we got into it the more I was like I should be listening to adoptee voices and I should be listening to first parent voices and I started thanks to Lori exploring the flip the script pieces and all of these things and people were like why are you reading that it's so scary it's so angry and I was like well shouldn't I know why people are angry <laughs> like isn't this a responsibility and I think that that was the piece that no one ever said seek these voices um through the like official channels but that was a huge aha because it was like once I got over the fear of oh my god what if what if I read something that's scary it was like well it's there whether I read it or not <laughs> and these feelings are real and I think opening this up and and your book is going to be so amazing because I think it's going to really open up this fairy tale of what people it's very convenient to package it the way that adoption has been packaged from my perspective and now I'll shut up because I'm not actually I feel like an outlier <laughs> but thank you I really appreciate everyone's perspectives I'm so glad you're here, Jess. You are, you are, your voice is really important to this conversation as somebody who has done the work that you did and decided not to adopt. So thank you for sharing that. Beth, I'd love to hear from you. Thank you. And yeah, I agree, Jess, your voice is very important. Um, and I'm just here in gratitude for all of you, especially the adoptees and the birth parents. And I, I, um, my big aha was I didn't realize adoption was going to cause any trouble at all I thought okay we'll just do this thing he won't even notice and I when I realized it he was 15 and had tried to kill himself several times and was deeply into addiction and mental health and an adoptee friend of mine suggested hey your son's adopted right you might want to look into this and I'm ever grateful for her for that because it set us on a path and my son is doing the work, I'm doing the work, and we're all helping each other, supporting each other to to heal. And I, I am just driven to help other um, potential adoptive parents or adoptive parents who've already adopted to realize much sooner than I did that adoption really is a, is a thing and it's painful and it's traumatic. So I'm... I continue to raise up the voices of the adoptees and the birth parents whenever I can. 
And thank you to Lori and Kelsey and Sarah for putting this together. It's been really, really great. Thank you so much, Beth. Um, I, I didn't really want to call anybody out, but Jen Winkleman, I do want to give you an option to speak if you'd like, because you have a vast store of stories from adoptees, from parents who have placed, and from adoptive families who have struggled. Is there anything you want to say about ahas? I'm just the the aha I continue to have over and over and over again with every family that I meet and with every adoptee that I encounter is that um, no two adoptions are the same. No two adoptees have the exact same story and the pain is vast. It is wide and deep. And I'm just really thankful that these conversations are are happening the way that they are. And being a part of this tonight has been such a privilege because I'm listening to all the things that everybody has to say. And I just feel like I, I can't, my neck is going to be tired from nodding because I'm just like, yes, 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 yes. And I just want everybody to have so much time and a platform to be able to take a deeper dive into what they're bringing to the conversation because there is so much wisdom here. There is so much truth here. And I guess coming back to um, part of what uh, Lori and Rebecca talked about in terms of, you know, do your own, do your own work people. I mean, we, we talk about that and think about that from the adoptive parent perspective, but here we are, um, you know, all members of the constellation are participating in doing some work to uncover all this and tell, tell the whole truth, tell the real truth. And I just think that's a very powerful thing. And it's where healing begins. Wow. Tell the whole truth. That's, <laughs> that could be our slogan, right? Tell the whole truth. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much, Jen. So many people said, I wish I would have known. I wish somebody would have told me. I wish someone would have explained the complexity of this. And you know, we 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 hide from that, I think, sometimes because nobody wants to touch the pain. And if we knew, if we really knew what we were getting into, how many people would have the courage to make those choices or the decisions that they make related to adoption, whether it's to place or to dive in and welcome a, a child into your home who has this history of trauma, even if they're coming to you, you know, the day after they're born. I just, oh, it's sobering and it's exhausting, but it's really um, beautiful and inspiring to me to see this many people coming together from this many different angles and and really trying to speak the truth to help to help somebody who doesn't have an understanding get the full picture because with the full picture we can really do something the longer our heads are in the sand the longer it stays broken and really people get hurt that way that's how people that's how everybody got hurt yeah in in the process related to adoption let me let me jump on that because I've been thinking this whole time. Obviously, I'm a storyteller, and that's what I try to help people do. And I don't do it. It's not a profit-driven thing. This is a passion-driven thing. This is from personal experience. And some things that you guys have said have really made me 
feel like it was okay to say this. I encourage you to go on some podcasts and tell your stories because I can, I'm sitting here listening to every single one of you. And I'm like, Oh my God, I want to hear everything about this person's story. And, and I say that because what happens is we frequently tell the elevator pitch of our story, right? I was born in Baltimore. I found my biological mother working around the corner from me, you know, and then I found my biological father through DNA that I just left out like, 157 pieces of my story and my mission is to help adoptees to tell their story so i encourage the adoptees here and anybody who listens to please come to my show other shows adoptee land um you know all of those other ones but also i would encourage you birth mothers and people who have placed children to tell your story too because it's my belief that your pain is lost and i've heard some really powerful things here today that I'd never heard before. And I think that it's important for you to tell your own stories too. So my colleague in podcasting, D. Yvonne Rivers has started Birth Moms Real Talk. And that's a place where you can go be part of that village. If you've not told your story, I think that it is both cathartic for you to express it yourself, but it's also therapeutic for someone else to hear what you've been through and empathize with you and remember what they've been through and heal from the story that you are sharing with them. There's power in the community, as was just said by Jen, there's power in the storytelling, there's power in the truth sharing. And I think we all need to be contributors to that. So whatever you do, whether you're a book writer or a storyteller, or you're an artist, I encourage you to express yourself and explain what it is that is going on in your mind so that others can understand where you're coming from because your perspective is very unique, but others can relate to it and they, they can't relate to it if you haven't expressed it. So please find your outlet, share your story through writing, through storytelling or whatever. Yeah, thank you, Damon. And I have to give a plug, a shameless plug for Adoptee Voices as well. We help help make space and support adoptee storytelling. We have an e-zine, we have um, writing groups for adoptees. And Amy Seek had to leave early, but she and Ridge House have just started writing groups for birth parents. So that's um, something that's really exciting as well. So, um, and I know there are a lot of other groups of and of writers, you know, outlets to write, and it is so important. Um, for the, you know, the mirroring that takes place and the normalization and just so many different things. And like you mentioned, Damon, just that healing component of getting it out. It, none of this was meant to be in. So, um, and kept inside. And that's why this delayed grief is so significant, right? Um, Lori, shall we, and Kelsey, shall we, shall we wrap up? We've gone, we've, I think we've learned a lesson that, that an hour is nowhere near enough to scratch the surface. So this is the last hour long, <laughs> um, one of these roundtables we will do. I think we're going to need to make them longer. Lori, Kelsey, any parting, parting um, comments? Thanks everyone who tuned in. We're so glad to have you. We will be doing some more roundtables with these people and other contributors. So um, please make sure you subscribe to our um, our vlog uh, on YouTube. Three sides to every adoption. Thanks to all of you for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, rate, and share wherever you listen to help others find adoption unfiltered. It's through healthy engagement that we can make the changes needed for all those impacted by adoption. Visit adoptionunfiltered.com for other episodes and more information about our other projects.